Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. Simon Hughes here and as promised we're going to continue today with the second half of the interview with Jeff Boycott that I did about a month ago in commemoration of his 80th birthday which is coming up on Wednesday the 21st of October. Just before we continue the interview, just an advance warning of another one of these virtual cricket club events after last week's successful launch in a way of Angus Fraser and John Embry, which I hope you enjoyed and saw or listened to. Uh, this week, we're very pleased to announce we've got Joe Root, the England captain and of course one of England's greatest ever batsmen. He's coming on at seven o'clock on Thursday night, Thursday the 22nd of October. Joe Root, seven o'clock, up close and personal uh, with me and some Simon Mann and we're going to interview him he's given his time for nothing and the idea is we raise funds for the Professional Cricketers Trust which is a trust a benevolent fund which helps players that have fallen on hard times former professional cricketers it's a very vital service that has supported nearly 300 cricketers who've had emotional or physical issues over the last few years. The funding of that particular society charity has actually declined over the summer because of the lack of ability to run events. So we are raising some money for the Professional Cricketers Trust through these various virtual live stream events. Joe Root this week and Stuart Broad next week. To sign up, all you have to do is go to Patreon and pay £6 and it's £6 for a month. So that's four live events in Included in that £6 cost. So that'll be Joe Root this week, Stuart Broad next week, probably Mark Wood the week after, and lots of other former players as well as current players are going to be on this site, all giving their time for nothing on the live stream. Patreon it is, and so you sign up to that by going to the link on my social media site, or you can follow it at www.patreon.com slash the analyst one if you go to that you'll see blogs posts and a link to these live streams that we're doing every thursday night please support that because i think a you'll find it really fun and interesting and insightful and b also you're giving some money to a very valid cause 
Okay, now let's continue with the Jeff Boycott interview. And if you remember last time when we were speaking, we talked about his early life, his childhood, his first coach, his first hundred, and his debut for Yorkshire, and so on. And the the next question I asked him after that, sort of looking back at some of his uh, sort of halcyon days as a young player, was had he ever got a first baller? Three times. Really? Is that all? A thousand and some? First class innings. A thousand the first half inning, three yeah, times. Over a thousand. Nineteen sixty-five. We're playing MCC. It's my second tour. First to Australia. And we're playing South Australia. Just before Christmas. We feel it all day and part of the next day. And on the twenty fourth, the day before Christmas, Christmas Day is gonna be rest day. We go on to Interbat, and I get caught by Ian Chapel at Slip off a guy called Frost. It's his first ball ever in first class cricket. <laughs> I said, No, you can't believe that. Jack Frost had bowled me out the day before Christmas. True. Nice I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't make it up, could you? He didn't play a lot of matches, he played a few. So I had a wonderful Christmas. Sweating on a first ball pair. <laughs> God in heaven. I remember that. I never forget it. And I'm there sweating in the heat thinking, oh my God, in a couple of days I've got a bat again and, oh, <laughs> and I've got a field. Uh, fortunately, they left us a run chase. Like a game of it. It was a, you know, two a match. I made 58 and uh, I put on a, oh, 130, I think, with Bob Barber for the first wicket and we won the match. Yeah, that is a declaration. And uh, but I'll tell you what, that was some Christmas. You didn't enjoy your turkey that uh, Christmas day. I didn't you? enjoy anything till I batted again. Let me tell you. Anybody tells you they're nervous in the nineties, I'm sorry, I don't get it. You're an idiot. You should be nervous when you're on a pair or you're on naught. That's when you're you're most vulnerable. Nineties? You're kidding me. You should be in charge then. You battered for how long? I ain't thinking nervous. In the 90s, I ain't thinking nervous ever. I'm thinking, it's me, I'm in charge. Not, mm-mm, totally different thinking. <laughs> well, thank goodness you didn't get it there. So what about the other two instances? Oh, Christ, you want them all? No, I'm not telling you oh, all. Oh, go on. Uh, Peter Lever got me once. Second innings at Manchester. And Rodney Hogg got me in a test match. Yeah. In uh, when my brain was scrambled in '78-9, Yorkshire sacked me as captain. My mum was just died. Oh, I shouldn't have gone. But I, Rodney did me. I like Rodney. Good man. Good bowler. I did three. And how was that one out? That last yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. They were all out. He no, was out. I mean, how was it? How were you? Out? LBW to Rodney. Right. Caught it to. She caught behind a slip of Peter Levy. Well, beautiful out swingers, Pete. Lively, good bowler. Is it? Is it? Um, is it you getting a first baller? Is it like sort of somebody who's very, very hungry, dangling a, a beautiful steak in front of them, and then just whipping it away like that? I had a friend once came to Headingley with his girlfriend. He told me at the end of the day. He says, "Oh, we, we came to watch you." And his girlfriend, they got stuck queuing up. Used to be good crowds then. He got sat down and she says, when's Jeff coming in to bat? He says, shut up. And there was a 
find. She says, when's he coming in? Shut up. He's already out. <laughs> They're a few minutes late and they've missed me. <laughs> you know, um, Mike, Mike Brearley um, was once opening against uh, Surrey at, at the Oval. Um, Middlesex Surrey. Um, I think it was a Gillette Cup game. And um, he went out to open. Sylvester Clark was bowling, obviously. First, he got a first baller. Club down the leg side, yeah. caught behind. <laughs> Ferocious delivery, caught down the leg side. He went storming off, really, up the stairs uh, into the old dressing room. Um, remember, they used to have a dressing room attendant called Ted. Yeah. Uh, they had lots of Ted's actually, but this one, anyway, this Ted saw Brearley sort of m- wandering around in the <laughs> dressing room, and he hadn't realised the match had started. <laughs> and he he said, "Skip, you know, they've gone out. Skip, the, the, the players are out there." And Brearley nearly wrapped the bat around. <laughs> It's not Down funny. Off. It's like funny that. afterwards, oh but it's not funny getting yeah. naught. It's yeah. only funny afterwards. We've done first test. Um, what about first test hundred? My first test hundred was the fifth test of nineteen sixty-four, England Australia, but I missed one test with a broken finger, so it was my fourth. The fifth test of the series, my fourth at the Oval. We batted, we bowled out, they batted. When we batted again, Saturday night, I was 73 or 74 not out. Rest day, Sunday. But Saturday night, both teams were invited to a kind of dress rehearsal for Harry Seacombe, a show in London. We went backstage to see Harry, got drinks for us and a few nibbles and things, meet everybody. And I met the great man. I mean, he was loved by everybody in England. He was funny. He could sing. He had a warmth and generous spirit about him. Met him once. Monday morning comes. I get my first 100. 113. Caught red path at slip. slip bowled Bob Simpson. Wrist spinners. Big spinner. Pitched it perfectly. Turned. Caught it slip. 113. Within no time at all of getting out, a crate of champagne comes from Harry Seacombe. I've met him once, and I'm, I'm probably the least best player in the team. There's Barrington, there's Dexter, there's Cowdery, isn't there? They all knew him, and this man sent me champagne. So I always remember it, yeah. And that was, Ted, that was Fred's match where he got his 300th test wicket, world record, when he had Neil Hawke caught by Cowdery at first slip. I was at fine lake fielding when he got it. I ran up to give him a hug and that, because he was... Oh, he was, once you played with him, he was my idol. Once yeah, go I on, tell, tell us a little bit about Fred Truman, go on. He was, he was just the best action you could ever wish for. He'd talk about perfect sideways on, looking through here. He had big shoulders, strong back, big backside, narrow waist, so you need a narrow waist to be able to turn for the outswinger. It was perfect. And uh, he always made a mark behind the bowling crease. About so far, if I remember. And the umpires knew he had a little bit of a drag so that his front foot wouldn't be too far over the line. It would be near the line, you see. And uh, the umpires agreed with him where to put the line. Good as gold. He just ran up and he just ran up beautifully. The rhythm was absolutely gorgeous. By the time we got to 64, I played with him at York 62, 63, and that season, his first spells were magic and then as the day wore on yeah he was getting on a bit he was you know puff gets you as you know 
and uh, it wasn't quite as quick. But he bowled out swingers, like Wacker used to bowl it in, he bowled it and then went out at pace. And he had this fantastic Yorker. Wacker used to trap them on the toe with the in-swinger. We used to call it the sand shoe crusher, didn't it? Getting whackered. Yeah. yeah. But his would go out. He'd set it off at leg stump oh, and oh. go out. Wow. wow. Hmm. And I mean, he bowled so often with a straight mid on and a fine leg. So just two on the leg side. And that's a very, very difficult field to bowl. I've seen Joe Root set fields for Anderson and Broad. Very difficult. I've seen two bowlers that could bowl to that I've played with. One was Ian Bolton, one was Fred Truman. Ian swung it out with control. You have to have great control of the swing, the direction and the swing. And it didn't swing from the arm, it went and swung like whackers. Listen, you can get 300 wickets at 21. Eh? Yeah. If he'd have played the amount of test matches that Jimmy Anderson has played, and he's a wonderful bowler, I worked it out, Fred would have got over 100 wickets more. Worked that out. And he got his at 21s, Jimmy's is at 26, 27. I rest my case. Both great bowlers, different eras. But when people see everybody on television today, they say, oh, he must have been the best. He's the best because I saw him. Well, there are people like Don Bradman and Wally Hammond and Jack Hobbs, aren't they? Just Lots of people. <laughs> well, they're better than me. Yeah, Everton Weeks, so all these people. George Headley. There's nothing to see of George Headley, is there? I've got a film somewhere, two shots of the great man. Hmm. You know, these people were not seen. They're out of sight, they're out of mind. And they tend to think anything they see on television must be the best ever, if he's good. There are a lot of great players in the past. Jim Laker tells the best story. He got 19 wickets and bowled Australia out at Old Trafford and won the test. Halfway in his car back to the Oval to play next day, he stops in the Midlands, a little break, pint of beer, get a sandwich at a local pub. All the people in the pub are talking about this Jim Laker who's bowled the Aussies out and won the test. He sat on the corner and they don't recognise him. No television. And I think when he got home, his wife said, I've been hearing a lot, of, uh, a lot about you on the radio today. Did you do something good? <laughs> yeah, no television, you yeah. see. And people tend to think that only the players today, they must be the best. Not true. But you like Fred Truman's uh, approach to things like tail-enders as well, didn't you? Tail-enders? He was the best ever. I used to look at the clock when there were seven wickets down. I knew I'd be batting in 15 minutes. Which must be very helpful, actually. Oh, you're trying to get your head right. You're trying to get yourself ready. You're thinking about Statham's going to bowl, Higgs, what have you, which bowlers. You're trying to look at the pitch. You know, I've got to get forward on this. Or the other one, it's bouncing. Don't get to it. You're just getting your preparation done in your mind, although you're feeling. And the last thing you want is some tail-enders smacking runs around and you're in the field and you're all racing round. That it happened with Fred. Hey up, sunshine. That won't be a log. <laughs> oh, uh, nice day. Harry, how are you doing? Oh, good, Fred. Thank you very much. Yeah. How's the wife and kids? Good, Fred. 
Yeah, well, uh, once you get someone runs this over, why is that, Fred? Because I'm on next over. If it's still here, I'll knock the bloody block off. <laughs> so they got out, didn't they? One way or another, they didn't hang around. A couple of bouncers, no helmets. You yeah. liked the fact that he bowled into the ribs, didn't you? He, he always said, if you just into the ribs, it hurts. There's no, there's no muscle. It's just rib. And it hits your rib, it hurts for weeks. When you cough, when you laugh, not yeah. funny. It's funny laughing, but it's not funny when you get one. And if you hit them, they're gone. They're gone. They, they, they don't stay in line long enough. No, he polished them off. And he loved you, didn't he? He loved you because you gave him time to rest. Well, when I first started, if, if, if you, we had these sometimes difficult pitches, not always, but sometimes difficult pitches, you had to stay in, pacing. And if anybody in the dressing room said anything that, oh, well, he's a bit slow or a bit steady, hey, up, you're not batting. How many runs did you make? You shut up. Leave him alone. He wanted to get his head down and rest because we played six days a week. Uh, and then when 68 came, we played seven days because we had Sunday league. So <laughs> these days, they get three or four days rest before a test match. They didn't have that. They just had to keep bowling. And so he liked batsmen who gave him a chance to get his head back. And these big boots, they were big leather boots, you know, heavy. Not today, they're all made by Nike and Adidas and they're beautifully lightweight, like athletes have them. They were like pit boots. Mm. Which, in one way, it helped, it helped them strengthen their ankles when they bowled so they didn't get many injuries like today's bowlers. But they were heavy. Oh, and do, do it. And he just liked to get them off, lay down. Every lunchtime, he always has a snooze. He'd put his sweaters down in a corner on a bench and say, you lot, keep quiet. So we, we went out for lunch. When you come back, you better not bang the door. He was not enough. Then he bowled like the wind. Hmm. He was a fantastic character. Give us a little account of, uh, I presume, you know, highs and lows, the highest moment, best moment, worst moment. So, best moment in cricket. Oh, my hundredth hundred. I mean, <sighs> you just, you just couldn't. It's like a comic, isn't it? It's like when you used to read Roy of the Rovers, and the last minute of full-time, Roy would score the penalty and his team would win the match. That's a comic book story. Um, it just was amazing how it happened because I had all the stress and pressure of whether I was going to make myself available to play for England again. And when I did, the selectors didn't pick me, making a point that they picked the team, that's fine. And then when they did pick me, at Nottingham, oh, the pressure was enormous. And uh, fortunately, I got 100. And we won the match. That was my 98th 100. Oh, God, I was relieved to get through that. Um, then I had a few days off, and then we Yorkshire played at Warwickshire. It's a rain ruin match. There's no chance of a result. I got 100 there. But I got a lot of 100s in county cricket. I didn't think much about it until I just rang Rachel on my way home. She says, oh, you've done it now. I said, you've done what? So it's all over the news. You're going to get your 100th 100 at Headingley. That's a give over. I mean, do you know how many people have tried to do that in the history of the game? And it's not happened. I, I certainly ain't the best player ever by a long way. I know there are plenty of others. 
she said, well, we're all saying you're going to get it at Headingley. It's your home ground. You're used to it. I said, what, England, Australia? Oh, Jesus. So that's the lead up to it. And that's where the pressure starts. Oh, Christ, I've just got through coming back to England, you know, without failing, because there's always a danger of fail. And now I've got this. And yeah, it was difficult. It was, it was difficult to take it in at first. And that's why I didn't sleep the night before. I, uh, I had four, four hours sleep. I was too hot, the air conditioner wasn't working. I had the man come up to fix it, but in the end, it wasn't that, was it? It was me, I was all uptight. And for the first time ever in a test match, I was late to the ground. He was taking the nets down when I got there. I knew him well. I mean, I played for Yorkshire, Edinburgh. I said, no, no, you've got to leave him up. Keith, Keith, <laughs> Keith was, I said, I need a knock. I need something, just to loosen him. But Jeffrey, I, they didn't have many staff then, you see. He said, I've got to roll the pitch and I've got to get the nets down and roll the pitch. And I said, but I need, well, I'll just take one net down and, and be quick. I've got a couple of local lads who were helping out bowling to bowl at me for seven or eight minutes, had a little knock, and then he won the toss, Briars. Oh, I thought, I was hoping he'd lose it and then... The sort of stress would gradually dissipate. Yeah, you get feeling. I'm probably the bat all day, and then I get a good sleep because I had a bad sleep, and I was a good sleeper really. I always slept eight hours. A very, very good sleeper. That didn't happen. No, on the toss, I and uh, I just got ready for it. And what waking me up more than most was um, as we're walking out, Bria said, did you mind if I take first ball? Well, the way I was feeling, normally took first ball. I said, yeah, okay. And he got out fourth ball for naught to Thompson. That waking me up a bit. <laughs> You're like, we're not for one. And then I got Pasco bowling, who was mad as a hatter. I played against Lenny in um, great cricket in Australia. And he always bowled a number of bouncers. I actually like I actually liked a bouncer or two early in my innings. The sooner you got a bouncer or two, because you better be alert, it wakens you up. If you're feeling a bit sluggish, you better get with it because you're gonna get sweeted, aren't you? And you gotta duck weave and so you gotta get going. Lenny give you one or two, so you've gotta get with it. It gets your feet moving. And it did. Um, twenty-five minutes I felt great. The ball was hitting the middle of the bat. Gone had this thought of uh, no sleep, tired. I was up for it. Yeah. And about, what, five o'clock or something, was it? You Ten to six. Five to six. Five to six. You hit your, your hundredth run. I hit the run um, one of the few times in my life um, where I knew I was going to hit it and where I was going to hit it before it had got past halfway. That doesn't happen very often, let me tell you. As soon as it let, I was working on a couple of shots not to play. I didn't want to try hooking. And, and uh, I think it pitched outside off stump, but it was foolish. And I took it from outside to in straight. And actually it went near Rachel, where Rachel was sitting near. I didn't do it on purpose, I'm not saying that, but it just by pure chance, it went near where she was sitting, straightish on side. Did you see her? Oh, I knew she was there. I knew all the, whenever she came to a match, I knew exactly where she was. I wasn't waving or anything, I was just concentrating. 
she said, what she said to me, they were all saying you were stuck on 80-something for 30 minutes or something. I said, really? I said, did you know? I said, no. I was just waiting for the right balls. That's the difference. How did you feel when, when it went for four? Well, I just knew. As soon as I hit it, if you watch the film, as soon as I hit it, my arm goes up. It, it, it hasn't passed Rupi at the other end. Because Rupi was the non-tag. He said to me afterwards, he said, he said, I have a, what is it, something distinction, unused distinction, what's that? He says, I was the other end when you got your 100, and I was the other end when John Edrich got his. It's a good double. Mm. It's like Carl Brathwaite was Anderson's uh, 600th wicket, sorry, Anderson's 500th wicket and Broad's 500th. Mm. Carl Brathwaite, yeah. Um, okay, so, that, so that's the sort of, in a way, the, the peak of your achievement. And, you know, you obviously played on, you know, a few years after that, many years after that. Then you, you know, you changed career. So you've had, you know, two genuinely very successful careers. When did you first get into commentary? What was your first commentary stint? I tried to think of that. Um, I think it, I think it was probably 1972. Wow. Um, BBC did all, you know, anything that was on BBC. England, County Cricket. Well, it wasn't much County Cricket. It was Gillette Cup when that started. Yorkshire got to the final in 72, but before the final, that Saturday, we played Sussex at Hove. And John Snow, the England quick bowler, it was quick, was the pitch. It was good, but it was quick. He got one to rear, and I played it, and it caught me on the inside here, no protection there, not on the gloves where it was padded, on the edge. And I had to go to hospital, I had a plaster cast on. So I missed the final, which Yorkshire won and beat Derbyshire three days later. And uh, I'm pretty sure I did a bit. Just like now, um, I saw Stuart Broad doing a bit and a Jimmy Anderson on Sky. And I got invited in to say a little bit. Because I was a current and England player and so forth. And that was the first bit. I liked it. And from then on, I always thought, yeah, I wanted to do that. I mean, there's many people want to do it, better than my dad working down a coal mine, isn't it? But it's, are you any good at it? That you never know. So I asked advice to Richie Benno and Jim Laker. Jim Laker was a good man, top man. Richie's good. If you ask Richie, always helpful. And uh, I remember what he said to me then. Uh, he said... People can see, while well, watching television, what's happening. Just saying it's a good shot. Well, they can see whether it's a good shot or a bad shot. And you get out. Don't state the obvious. Try and give them something that adds to their enjoyment. I mean, today a lot have got in the habit of talking as if they're doing radio commentary, don't they? Partly because they are, at the yeah. same time. Yes, and they forget that there are two different mediums. And television, nearly everybody that watched television has some idea about the game, some a very good idea. They've all played at school or club cricket or maybe are still playing. So they're not dumplings, they all know. I always try to talk to them as if it's my brother or my uncle or, and, and try and keep quiet a bit. Let them watch. Try and say something that 
enhances their watching. And, and you became, uh, you know, well known for your obviously sort of straightforward analysis and blunt kind of a, a appreciation of the game, but but also for sort of some regular words and phrases. You know, you, I could have caught that in the mother's pinny, yeah. you know, stick a rhubarb, corridor of uncertainty. Where did those all come from? Just instinct. I didn't work at them. I've never worked at anything. I haven't sat down and with a paper and pen and writing phrases down that I'll use tomorrow or next day. I study the game, always have. I've been in love with the game all my life, still are. I love it. I can watch cricket. Even though I've played 25 years, commentated 30, I love it. So it's not a hardship for me to watch cricket. It really isn't. I really enjoy it. And I actually like reading about the history, the great players of the past and things they're doing and get a a feel for what they were like. And I think if I had to say something about the, the modern day play, he, he doesn't read enough about the past, which is a shame really. It, it doesn't, doesn't put them in the shadow, but it's it, nice to know about what other people did. Because there's such a rich history, isn't there? Yeah, oh, you say to people about, you heard of Sidney Francis Barnes? Who's he? You know, for, for, for I know he might be the, Road sweeper, they've no idea who he is. He's probably the greatest bowler that's ever bowled for England. They haven't a clue. And I think that's sad, isn't it? Rachel once told me something which was really important. It was about Yorkshire, but it would apply to England too. When I was uh, on the board, when I was president, so it would apply to England just the same. If you're the opening batsman for England, somebody should take you for an hour and give you a little history lesson of all the great opening bats for England. Grace opened, didn't he? You've had Len Hutton open. I mean, just go through. Herbert Suckler's one of the greatest ever. You know, there's Jack Hobbs, isn't there? Oh, I mean, just doesn't make them better than you or you better than them, but get a sense of what the history and the tradition is. If you're England's finest opening bowler, we've had quite a few others as well over the years, haven't we? And the great wicket keepers, Les Ames. I bet half of them don't know how good he was and how many hundreds he got as a wicket keeper. He must have been a fantastic batsman. He was manager of a tour I was on, was Les, lovely man. And just of the people that played for England in the same position as you are. And same for the county lads. I mean, some of them... <laughs> I mean, like Gloucester, they should all read about W.G. Grace, shouldn't they? I mean, mm. the first great cricketer for England. Um, and if you're from Surrey, you should go and find out about Alec Betzer and Peter May and Ken Barrington and, and Jim Laker and Tony Locke and, and Jack Hobbs. And, whoa! And just, wow! And just look at some of the figures. And that's the beauty of the history. Yes, different rules... We played under different pitches, everything. But usually the cream always comes to the top, whatever rules you play under, whatever era. And have a look at their performances against other players from other countries. That tells you how good they are, doesn't it? It's not just them against present day, it's against the people that played Their, their peers, basically. You ask people who batted against Sidney Francis Barnes, Clem Hill was the greatest Australian batsman. There's a stand named after him. Can you remember? Yeah. 
And he said, Barnes, oh, it was unbelievable. He swung it and then it cut the other way. And you go, Jesus, how do you play that? But he's telling you and he faced it. So that tells you everything. Hmm. He's a great batsman for them and he's telling you how great this bowler was. I wonder, did, did, I'm just trying to think your history. Does that, did you ever meet, you never met Walter Hammond, did you? You probably did, actually. Yes, 1964 in Durban. His so, second marriage was to a South African girl. And then when he finished his career, he went to Durban. And so in a way, your connection goes back to the 20s, doesn't it? You knew, had, had, you had met Hammond, and obviously Hammond knew Grace, and you can sort of trace it all I back. I had Don Bradman, the greatest run-getter ever, sat on my bed when I was in hospital, in Adelaide Hospital. He was chairman of selectors. And one day this little fellow walked in. He's like five foot eight or something, five foot seven. This little fellow and sat on the edge of my bed and he's talking to me for an hour. And you go, wow, this is like, ah, this is like, ah, there is nobody bigger in cricket. And he sat on my bed talking to me because I was sick and in, well, the team had gone on and so forth. And he came along unannounced, nobody else with him. He gave me a book, I've still got it. He gave me a present, signed it. I don't know how we got on to that from Stick of Rhubarb and Corridor of Uncertainty, but I mean... They just came. It just, yeah. It's how I would talk um, to my friends room. and in the dressing room. Yeah. And I decided when I did commentary, and I was also told by David Hill, who is brilliant, he came from Channel 9 to do um, satellite TV. Uh, for a IMG who sold it to Sky the first years in the 90s and when he took me he came to start it for them and now and then they took him Murdoch took him to um, America to do Fox Sports he, he's the head man the best man and he said to me when he hired me he said carry on talking like you do as if you're talking to your brother your uncle as if you're sitting around talking to them I said really yep that's because you're talking to them, you're actually talking to the viewer. When you're talking on television, you're talking to that one person who's in his lounge watching, or her. Every person wants to know is if you're talking to them. Not down to them, talking to them, talking with them. Right, so we've got the two more questions. If you hadn't have been a cricketer, what oh. might you have been? Well, if it was sport, golf. The simple reason why is when you're a batsman, you cannot improve your game unless somebody bowls at you. It has to be a moving ball. No machines when I play, and I'm not a big believer in machines. Machines are all right. The ball comes out the same every time or roughly the same. And it's okay for me if you're practicing a particular shot. So you want the ball after ball after ball to come roughly. I'm I'm trying to play better off my legs. I want it to come roughly a fullish length around leg stump and I keep practising that and I'm practising that. That's okay. It's, I don't believe in it otherwise. You want to watch the bowler. I watch his hand. I watch where he's gone down or he goes here. I want to see the swing. I want to see his movement. So he move wider the crease, close to the stumps. But you do need bowlers. That's been hard to get. It is easier now because you have professional staff. When I grew up, we had no staff at Yorkshire whatsoever. 
neither did any other club. England didn't have any stuff. You just, if you wanted to practice outside of the morning of a match, well, when you got a day off, you had to go find your own bowlers. You had to talk to people. If you had been brought up in India, then you'd have been all right. I'd have been much better off in India. Everybody wants to bowl at you if you're a well-known player. But golf, you can practice on your own. And you can practice in long grass, rough areas. Look at Seve, he was a genius. Because that's how he had, he had a two iron. That's all he had to practice on wasteland. And his ball sat in scrub or rough or under a bush. No big deal. He just, that's what I've been doing as a kid. And he did it. So you can practice that. And that was, is the biggest thing in golf. You can practice on your own in any bit of land. I mean, look, if you've only got 20 yards, you can do chipping and putting. And make yourself good at that. You win a lot of tournaments. So you're the English Jack Nicholas that never was then? Well, I'm same age as him. He's just a few months older than me. And I have met him. met him at Wimbledon a few years ago. And uh, the golf course where our house is in Cape Town is a Jack Nicholas golf course. But if I'd have played in his area, golf and brought to, I'd have expected to win some majors. Mainly because at the same determination I had at cricket, I would have put into golf and practiced. And the other thing, it was an era where I think where is it 144 people play most tournaments, start a tournament, then there's a cut halfway. But really, going back into my era and Jack. 30-odd people really only could win. There was a big difference between the 144th and the top few. Now it's tougher. The kids are coming with, because of video, they're coming looking at themselves, great teaching, teaching aids, better practice facilities, and they're going up to, there's tours below the main tour, they can get used to competition, and in America, it's even better. They've got universities that play golf each university. You can get scholarships for golf. And these kids coming out now at 20, 21, 22, they could beat anybody. They're not frightened of anybody. But years ago, there weren't as many that were that good. That would have given you more chance. More chance. Yeah, okay. And um, if you could invite three people for dinner, dead or alive, except... Rachel, obviously, on your family, who might they be? Well, it, uh, I could pick loads of people. There's only one, Jesus Christ. And I mean that genuinely because nobody's done what he's done. I mean, he must have been a fantastic person. Um, I don't know if he was the son of God. I just know him was a great man, and he certainly lived. And he achieved, he changed, he, well, he brought down the Roman Empire and it's the biggest religion in the world. Wow. And, it, uh, and everything he taught was all good. <laughs> Trouble is, we human beings, we, we're not perfect enough to, to follow what he wants us to do. We follow some, but <laughs> sadly any of us could follow all, but it's all good, it's all right. If I forget that because he's way above anybody else you could invite, just way above. Um, Alexander the Great you're Alexander always, the Great I would have doing, yeah I think he conquered the known world was 300 and 350 BC that era 
he conquered from a little Greek state, uh, conquered almost in the known world, died young. Um, Brian Clough, just a very interesting friend, made me laugh, we had fun, he wanted to talk cricket, I wanted to talk football, and we just had great laughter and interest, and he, he could make players feel 10 feet tall. Didn't talk a lot, just very simple to the point. He understood people. And I think if, I was thinking the other day, probably Elizabeth I. Okay. She reigned as queen in an era of big male dominance, wasn't it? For the world, I mean, kings of all the countries. I mean, women were just pushed on one side to have children. He married them, brought countries and dynasties together and had children and that kept it going and but she she achieved a great deal she helped keep England stable had people work for her like Francis Drake you know beat the Spaniards and the French I think what she achieved in a male-dominated world was unbelievable mm. that's a nice little dinner party then <laughs> God interesting conversations and um, from the sublime to the ridiculous how are you going to celebrate your 80th birthday how would you like to celebrate it well we were going to go to the Ritz for tea <laughs> the girls wanted to go my daughter and my wife and I was for it yeah and and then a fine restaurant in London called Mossiman's Anton Mossiman's but traveling now with the virus and everything we're going to take uh, my daughter and Jeff's uh, youngster he's one shortly we're going to take him but getting babysitters and oh Christ. it's dangerous now so i don't know what we're going to do we 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 thought to go into york to one or two restaurants and lunch and what but again it's all getting silly nobody quite knows from every few days with this virus you know we've just got new rules now where it's getting more and more difficult and we all have to be sensible so to be honest Maybe York, but nobody's sure of anything. I mean, the only thing you can be sure of, everybody has to stay safe, be smart, try and stay alive. Well, you've done amazingly. I mean, you've come back from that cancer incredibly. You've got so much energy still. And I just want to sort of, on behalf of everybody that's enjoyed your both your cricket and your commentary over the years, just say thank you and wish you a really happy birthday and hope it hope it's what you, you want it to be i've loved every minute 25 years playing 30 years commentating if i could do it all again i would well that's all a fascinating insight from jeffrey of his long and distinguished career and i'd like to join with the other members of the cricketer magazine to wish him a very happy birthday a very happy 80th birthday for the 21st of october i'm sure it'll be an enjoyable occasion and just a quick reminder again about our event this Thursday with Joe Root, 22nd of October. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash the analyst one or go to my links on Twitter and you'll find a link to our live event this Thursday night. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening.
Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.